I know that we've been in this chapter for a while, but uh, Lord willing, we'll finish the chapter. In fact, we'll review a lot of it today. Um, this is such a pivotal text that uh, explains how the Christian life is to look as we live it together. Galatians chapter 5, and again, we'll backtrack a little bit. We'll read all the way from verses 13 through 26. Starting verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So, as you've probably gathered, we're going to continue in our study of Paul's letter to the Galatians. And I trust that we now have a really good sense of the central message of this book, that it's really firmly embedded in our minds and hearts, and that is that salvation is by faith alone, not by works. There is no ritual, no external observance, no tradition that a sinner must complete in order to be saved. The only thing necessary is faith in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf, and that the grace of God is poured out on the believing heart. To add anything to this gospel, even something so sacred to the Jews as circumcision, mutilates and perverts the gospel to the point where it is no gospel at all, but a spiritual death sentence to anyone who embraces it. Paul calls it another gospel. A false gospel so foul that he proclaims in chapter 1, verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And then he goes on to repeat this curse for good measure. For the last couple of Sundays, we've looked at Paul's transition from identifying and refuting that false gospel promoted by the Judaizers to a... to to describing how the true gospel is worked out in the lives and conduct of believers. We've seen 
how the whole of the law is fulfilled not by zealously pursuing the law, but by walking by the Spirit. The power to live righteously before God comes from God himself, who regenerates the repentant, believing sinner, giving him a new nature that seeks after God. It is by living our lives in this new nature, this new identity, that we starve out the desires of our old nature, which the Bible refers to simply as the flesh. Today we're going to uh, take more of a bird's eye view of the text so we can get a broader picture of what life in the Spirit looks like. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit or keep in step with the Spirit? This section, which runs from verses 16, uh, uh, sorry, verse 16 through 25 of Galatians chapter 5, is bracketed by two statements that clearly describe what walking in the Spirit is not. Look at verse 15. Paul has just exhorted the Galatians in verse 14 not to use their liberty as a gospel in the gospel as an excuse to do whatever they want, as an occasion for the flesh, that is to sin, but instead to serve one another through love, thus fulfilling the law. As we learned last week, the law is fulfilled by God working through in and through the believer, not by the believer working for God. Then in verse 15, he presents a contrast. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Notice that the phrase one another occurs twice in this statement. We're used to hearing the words one another in a more positive context, but twice. Bite and devour, consume one another. How we treat one another is where we find evidence of whether we are work, walk, working in the flesh, I say that deliberately, working in the flesh, or walking in the Spirit. Now let's look at the other bookend found in verse 25. Here we find another compound use of this phrase, one another. We read, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, saying very much the same thing. We see that in this entire section, which the ESV labels walk by the Spirit is bracketed by cautionary statements against biting, devouring, consuming, provoking, and envying one another. A ritualistic, legalistic gospel is essentially a gospel where individuals do whatever it takes to be saved. Every man for himself, in a sense. It is inherently self-serving, whatever veneer of piety it may project. Its adherents scrutinize, judge, and condemn the faults of others, while often ignoring or justifying their own faults on the basis of their externally righteous deeds. I thank you, Lord, that I am not as other men. Though they may fool themselves and others, they cannot fool God who sees their hearts. They will, not only will they stand condemned, by the presence of the works of the flesh in their lives, but also by the absence of the fruit of the Spirit. Today we're going to look at the meat in the sandwich, as it were, the substance of what it means to walk by the Spirit rather than working in the flesh. First, in verses 16 through 18, we will review the conflict between the flesh and the Spirit, which Pastor Kevin explained to us last week. Second, we will examine the corrupt nature of the flesh in verses 18 through 21. 
Third, we will find in the last part of verse 21 the consequences of the works of the flesh. Fourth, we will see in verse 22 and 20, verses 22 and 23 the contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Then we will examine the crucifixion of the flesh in verse 24. And finally, we'll see how all of this results, or pardon me, how this results in the communion of the Spirit in verses 25 and 26. So let's look now at the conflict between the flesh and the Spirit in verses 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time in these verses, as Pastor Kevin thoroughly taught through them last week. I only want to point out the reality of the battle between the flesh and the spirit, the battle in which every Christian is engaged. The reason that there is a battle is that though we are new creatures in Christ, we still carry with us our Adamic nature, the self-serving nature called the flesh. But that nature has no power over us when we yield ourselves to God. As Romans 6 verse 12 says, Let not sin, let not sin, therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. If only we could really truly grab hold of this. Sin has no dominion, no power, no authority over a believer who is walking by the Spirit. God is glorified when his children are led by the Spirit and thwart the enemies of our soul, the world, the flesh, the devil. Sin has no dominion over us. There is progress. There is victory in the battle. And God receives the glory. The Holy Spirit leads us to victory. And as long as he directs our steps, our actions, our thoughts, the enemies of our soul have no claim on us. What's more, the law has no power to condemn us. But we need to remember that this conflict is a real conflict with a real enemy, and it involves more than just passive submission to God. Walking by the Spirit is an action. We are led by the Spirit, yes, that seems somewhat passive, but... To be led, we must walk. We must be moving forward. We have the authority to stand, or pardon me, we have the authority to say to sin, say no to sin. I'm just going to repeat that. We have the authority to say no to sin. We are no longer its slaves, but as we have the capacity, also we have the capacity and desire to obey God. Again, Romans chapter 6 helps us clarify in verse, verses 22 and 23. It says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and eternal life. As we obey Christ, our lives become fruitful. We become more like Christ as we anticipate the day that we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I believe that the 
fruit Paul talks about here in Romans chapter 6 is the same fruit we find in Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit. That means it is planted by the Spirit, nourished by the Spirit, ripened by the Spirit, harvested by the Spirit. None of this is our own doing. Yet at the same time, we walk in obedience to the Spirit, obeying the law of Christ. Our faith is active, but it is not our activity that saves us. It is God who works in us both to will and to do according to His good purpose. So that's the conflict between the Spirit and the flesh, or between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Isn't it a blessing to know that at the end of the day, the battle is God's? That in simply following Christ, we are free from the curse of the law. That we can do the things our new nature wants to do instead of being governed by our old desires. The unbeliever has no such option. This victory is available to every Christian, but is most observable when we intentionally walk in the Spirit. When we intentionally reject the disarmed authority of sin. Our next point to consider is the corruption of the flesh, as described in verses 20 and 21. We're about to see what life looks like for those who yield yield to their own desires rather than walking by the Spirit. Let's look at verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Again, I don't want to dwell at length here. I'm not going to go into a detailed analysis of each of these sins and give you know, specific, lurid examples. I don't have to do this because Paul says they are evident. These are things that are obvious. The word here is literally they're glaring. They are, they are observable and readily identifiable as works of the flesh. No one would argue that those are fleshly things. As obvious as they may be, Paul makes a point of listing them here so that his readers are forced to examine themselves. Very few people will be able to say, I am 100% free of all of these sins. Can anybody here say that they're 100% free of all of these sins? Don't we all have moments of enmity, of strife, of jealousy? Well, it sort of depends whether we're walking in the Spirit. Many, or maybe we've managed to avoid the more outwardly scandalous ones like sorcery or orgies. But they all have the same root. They are all the works of the flesh. And if our lives are characterized by any of these, it is clear that, and it is clear that it, They have mastery over us, and especially if we are content with their mastery over us or feel somehow justified in carrying out these acts, we have some serious self-examination to do. It may be that some of these things have crept into our lives unawares and that seeing our own behaviors laid out here as works of the flesh is a slap in the face or like a bucket of ice water poured over our heads. We are alarmed. We are stricken and we're saddened. Brothers and sisters, if you see yourselves in this list and you are grieved, might I suggest that the Holy Spirit within you is grieving? And if this is the case, 
The fact that, let the fact that he is in you comfort you. His grief is calling you to confess your sins, to repent and yield your members to God as instruments of righteousness. When a believer reads this list and sees himself, the reaction is always to come boldly before the throne of grace and there find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Let us not forget that we are always in need of the grace of, that comes through the Lord and through Christ, through the Holy Spirit. When an unbeliever sees himself in this list, when an unbeliever sees himself, he may be shamed, he may be embarrassed, but unless God does a work of grace, his impulse will be to, be, to work harder and, and become a better person. Or he may compare himself to others and say, I'm not all that bad. Relatively speaking, I'm pretty good. And besides, nobody's perfect. The truth is that the natural man, the fleshly man, delights in the works of the flesh. The pleasure of indulging in the works of the flesh far outweighs the pangs of conscience that accompany them. And the more he indulges, the more seared his conscience becomes. The deeper grows the depravity of his desires. And you see how saving a sinner is nothing short of a miraculous act. More miraculous than raising a dead body from the dead. We have, we have here in these verses a representative but not exhaustive list of the ways in which the flesh manifests itself. Paul includes it here to bolster his earlier warning in verse 13. It says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but in love serve one another. Our gospel freedom is freedom from the curse of the law, from the dominion of the flesh, of the flesh from the power of sin. It is not freedom to sin. In the gospel, sin is forgiven, not sanctioned. Christ shed his blood to atone for our sins, to turn away the wrath of God. He did not die so that we could continue offending the holiness of God, indulging in the works of the flesh while doing lip service to the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And that power not only saves, but sanctifies as the Holy Spirit identifies sin and points us to Christ. Maybe you've heard people talk about so-and-so being a carnal Christian. It's not quite so common anymore. I, I won't say that people who match that description are not common, but a few years ago, 20 maybe, that was a common phrase. Oh, he's just a carnal Christian. And that means that they are, and the meaning of that they associate with this is that they're saved, but pretty much walking in the flesh. The term carnal Christian, or should I maybe qualify that, a continuously content carnal Christian, is problematic because it creates a category of Christian in whose life the works of the flesh are evident a person who reeks of carnality while, profess, while professing salvation or professing, professing to be spiritual. The thought is that someday that carnal Christian will outgrow his carnality and become spiritual. Let's be honest. There is an element of carnality in every Christian. 
If there weren't, we wouldn't have to do battle with our flesh every day. But friends, there is no such thing as a carnal Christian, meaning one who brazenly walks in the flesh, fulfilling its desires, while at the same time being a new creature in Christ. The new nature abhors sin. If there is sin there, the new creature cannot live with that sin in contentment. The indwelling Holy Spirit is grieved by sin. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? Paul's answer is, God forbid. Having asserted, uh, pardon me, having alerted his readers to the corrupt nature of the flesh with a bracing list of the works of the flesh, Paul goes on in the last part of verse 21 to warn about the consequences of carnality. Carnality is just a word that means living in the flesh, according to the flesh. He writes, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things, the works of the flesh that we just read, will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are not trifling words. They uphold the holy character of the God who entered his own creation to die as a man because it was, his own, was the only way that his justice could be satisfied without destroying man that he made in his image. God despises sin and will not share his kingdom with people who despise his holiness. Christ did not die to coddle sin. Paul's warnings, warning here applies to all who read it. It applies to genuine Christians as a reminder of the sinfulness of sin and as a text that the Holy Spirit can use to bring sin into the light for confession and repentance. When the Gospel of John exhorts us to walk in the light, I believe that is closely aligned with walking in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit does not mean, or walking by the Spirit does not mean that we are continually sinless but we are walking in the light and the Spirit reveals our sin to us and gives us direction, brings conviction, brings sorrow and godly sorrow brings about repentance and we are restored, we are disciplined under the loving hand of our God. The warning may also apply to Christians by motivating us to rescue brothers and sisters that we see flirting with temptation, or as we will see later in chapter 6, who have been caught in a trespass, caught in a sin. Not wallowing, not reveling in sin, but caught in the sin. There's a difference. Believers are caught in the sin. Believers are not identified by sin. Sin is serious, and we have to take it seriously. We cannot afford to ignore it. The warning here also applies to unbelievers. By clearly identifying uh, the wages of sin as death, or as Paul says here, by clearly excluding the unrepentant sinner from the kingdom of God, the scriptures leave the sinner condemned. The wicked will not stand in the judgment according to Psalm 1. And when that sinner sees that he has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, naked and ashamed, it is here that the gospel does its work. And there and here that that heart is either hardened 
or regenerated by the message of the gospel. Don't be discouraged if you preach the gospel and some hearts are hardened. Don't be ashamed of that. Don't buy into the lie that you're bringing shame upon the name of Christ by turning people away because you're preaching the gospel. The gospel will offend. It is a stench of death to some and the fragrance of life to others. The consequence of carnality is exclusion from the kingdom. Paul's gracious warning to all is turn from sin to Christ. Do not presume that grace will abound to the sinner who delights in his sin and tramples the blood of Christ under his feet. So far, this passage has identified the conflict between the flesh and the spirit, provided examples of the corruption of the flesh, and warned us about the consequences of living in the flesh. Aren't you glad the passage doesn't stop right here? Everything that we have seen so far is vital intelligence to the battle we, for the battle that we wage. But it focuses on the nature of our enemy rather than the source of our victory. We have yet to see what a difference the Holy Spirit makes in the life of the believer and how the work of the Spirit, not our own work, produces fruit that is desirable and has no negative no disastrous consequence. Let's look now at verse 22. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Sometimes the little things in Scripture are very important. In this case, the little thing is the word, but. That little conjunction clearly establishes a contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. That's our next point as we navigate through this text. The contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. I think it's interesting that the product of the flesh is called works, while the product of the Spirit is called fruit. The flesh is all about work. And you know what that word works means? <clears throat> it means toil. It means labor. The flesh is all about work. It is a ruthless taskmaster. Its demands are unrelenting. It is a gaping hunger that cries out to be filled. The flesh never delivers what it promises and always leaves its slaves hungry for more of what will ultimately destroy them. There is a compelling picture of this reality in the book of Haggai, or Haggai, where the Lord confronts his people about pursuing their own desires while letting the temple of the Lord lie in ruin. Listen to what he says. Consider your ways. Give careful thought to your ways. You have sown much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to, do, to put them into a bag with holes. Why is this happening? Because they have neglected the temple of the Lord 
and they are building their own paneled houses. They're serving their own desires. What a contrast we see now as we turn to look at the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit is produced not by the labor of the plant, but is a combination of what the plant is designed to do and the resources that are put into that plant. The plant has special cells that convert light into food, enabling it to grow. It draws moisture and minerals from the soil and from the, the rain that falls on the land. Cultivated plants depend on gardeners to maximize the production of fruit, while wild plants rely on their natural environment. But where do the water and the sunlight and the soil come from? The Lord provides them. Where does the growth come from? Where does the life come from? As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, 7, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Or God gave the increase. It's multiplied growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters it's anything, but only God who gives the growth. What a good metaphor for what happens in the Christian life when the Holy Spirit does his work. Fruit, growth, God does it. God makes it happen. Spiritual fruit is the work of God. God gives the increase. Yes, there is human effort expended in cultivation, watering, weeding, and other tasks. But that plant will not produce fruit without the divine energy and impulse to grow, to be fruitful and multiply. Notice that our text speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, not of the fruits of the Spirit, even though there are at least nine items listed there. This is not a grammatical error in the text. These nine qualities, though different from one another, are complementary to one another and function together as one. Without self-control, love is greatly diminished. Without patience, kindness suffers, and so on. These attributes, which constitute the fruit of the Spirit, are above reproach, not only according to the law of God, which is recorded in Scripture, but also according to the law govern, governed by conscience, the law that is on every heart. Against such, there is no law. While people might belittle these manifestations of godliness as something for holy rollers or whatever term they may be used, that they might use, no honest person can deny their virtue. By contrast, the works of the flesh exclude the worker from the kingdom of God. They break every law. The law of God is literally aimed at them, hanging over them, condemning them. Most people, including unbelievers, will display some evidence of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But the mere presence of these attributes does not equate with the fruit of the Spirit. Without the indwelling Spirit of God, the fruit is unacceptable and without value to God. Isaiah puts it another way. All of our righteousnesses, all of our righteousness, plural, are as filthy rags. The fruit of the Spirit, unlike the transactional righteousness people display in order to function in the world and in order to get ahead in life, is of divine quality. 
It stands apart, much like the a knockoff or a luxury watch would stand off against a knockoff watch. Its materials, its quality, its design are undeniably superior. When Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another, he wasn't saying that nobody else but his disciples had love. He was saying that the divine origin and nature of that love would be overwhelmingly evident, clearly distinguishing believers from unbelievers. Just as the works of the flesh are evident, shining, glaring, so, are the, so is the fruit of the Spirit. Christians love like nobody else loves. We love each other. We even love the world. We even love sinners. And this love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Friends, if you think the message here is be more loving, be more patient, or be more gentle, or be more self-control, or be a better person, you're missing the whole picture. If you're reaching into your own reserves to try to produce these things, you are striving in the flesh when what is really required is waiting on the Lord. An unbeliever can emulate the fruit of the Spirit to an extent, but though striving to keep the law, he will never delight in the law of the Lord. That's the difference. When the Holy Spirit is at work in the heart, when the Holy Spirit is at work, the heart is renewed and waits upon the Lord for strength, for vitality, for fruitfulness. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. James calls the law, the law of liberty. It is not so for a person who does not delight in it. And on his law, on the God's perfect holy law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. I'll remind you that Jesus uses this image of flowing water, of living water, and he says, the living water that I speak of is the Holy Spirit. Living water is also associated with the Word of God. So we have here a picture of the regenerative, life-giving, dunamos power of the Holy Spirit. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. Fruitfulness. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. The contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit is undeniable. There is no such thing as a hybrid uh, righteousness made up of a little of both. Verse 24 makes this point abundantly clear. It says, And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its affections and lusts. This is our fifth point, if you're taking notes. The crucifixion of the flesh. 
The believer regards his old nature as worthless and malevolent, a malevolent. And when he has when he was given a new heart, that old nature was figuratively slain, nailed to the cross. This text right here is a little bit different from Galatians 2:20 where Paul says, "I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me." There Paul is talking about our union with Christ in his death and the new life, the resurrection of the spirit that enables us to live for God rather than ourselves. The crucifixion in that text is not something Paul does, but something that has been done to him at the moment of conversion. I have been crucified with Christ. The action is done to him. In our text here, in chapter 5, it is the believer who initiates the crucifixion. He has clearly identified his flesh as the enemy and has taken drastic measures to eradicate it. Now, don't listen to the end. He has made a distinction between his new spiritual self and his old carnal self. It's important that we see those as different things. There was a lady in a, in a church where I was a pastor one time. And she said, you know, I really appreciated the, the last pastor because he told me that I was already good, but God made me better. And she said, and, and she went through a period of crisis where she was missing her old self. You know what the problem was? The flesh was not crucified. There was no probably, possibly, no God-initiated crucifixion of the flesh and newness of life. And therefore, there was also no deliberate crucifixion, mortification of the flesh making that distinction, that clear-cut division, and not calling ourselves carnal, but understanding that by the grace of God, and only by the grace of God, we are spiritual. This, could, this text, okay, uh, lost my spot here. It takes those who belong to Christ, yeah, pardon me, but notice, even there, here, the initiative and resolve to do this, to crucify the flesh, does not come and cannot come from the person himself. It says, those who belong to Christ have crucified, have crucified, so they are doing the action, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Only a slave of Christ can crucify the flesh. And this text connects back to verse 16, which says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You see the Trinitarian aspect of this. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Same concept. Just as walking by the Spirit is a deliberate action, so is crucifying the flesh. This action is part and parcel of daily life as a Christian. We must take up our cross daily and follow Christ. Jesus said that. Even the apostle Paul said, I die daily. As far as our salvation is concerned, our flesh has been crucified with Christ. As far as our sanctification is concerned, we actively engage in the battle with the residual but powerless control 
that the flesh attempts to wield over us. We have crucified the flesh. We are free from the law. Our victory, our sanctification progresses as we continue to take our stand against our enemy, motivated and empowered by the Holy Spirit. When God's people walk in the Spirit, when they separate themselves from the flesh, when they put it to death, a wonderful thing happens. They enter into communion with God, but not only with God, also with one another. This final point, the communion of the Spirit, is expressed in verses 25 and 26. Verse 25 reminds us, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step by the Spirit, or in other words, walk by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, if our spiritual life comes from the Spirit of God, let us live our daily lives in the power of the Holy Spirit. There's, a, there's an analogy here, too, in, in Hebrews, where we look, we look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The race that we run toward that goal, we can run that race because our eyes are on Christ. As we run this race, we keep in step with the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit, or run, as the case may be. Or if you're into Isaiah chapter 40, mounting up with wings as eagles, all of this is by the power of the Spirit. So we enter, by walking by the Spirit, we enter communion not only with God, but with each other. This final point, the communion of the Spirit, is expressed in verse 25, 26. Uh, 25 reminds us, if we walk in Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, if our spiritual life comes from the Spirit of God... Let us live our daily lives in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us consciously engage in our daily trials and triumphs, not in the strength of our own resolve or in our desire to be acceptable to God, but in the sweet truth that the God who has made us alive in Christ also gives us victory over sin and death and power to live for him. We have been brought from darkness to light, and now we are free and able to live as children of light. But what does this look like in the church? What is the combined effect of believers manifesting the spirit, the fruit of the Spirit? Well, Paul, said, Paul lays this out for us negatively rather than positively. We've already looked at one of these texts in our brackets that we began with. Having just identified the Holy Spirit as the source of our life and our victory over sin, he continues, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You could put it positively. Let us love one another. What does a functioning united church look like? Well, it's a gathering of spirit-filled Spirit-led believers who are not conceited, who do not provoke one another, who do not envy one another. The wonderful thing is that if we have, pardon me, if we live by the Holy Spirit, and if we walk by the Spirit, this precious communion of the Spirit is standard operating procedure. Paul writes to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 4, 
I urge you to walk in a matter, manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now listen to this. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. What is the measure of Christ's gift? Is it not infinite? If we are given according to the measure, is not the grace that is given to us infinite? The boundaries, the, the, uh, the barriers of sin can be demolished by this kind of grace. When we gather to worship, we are reminded that we are one in Christ. We unite our voices in song. We unite our hearts in prayer. We unite our minds in hearing the word of God. We unite our wills in obeying the word of God. We unite as we observe the Lord's Supper, as we witness baptism and how we are baptized into his death and raised again to newness of life. And there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We share in this baptism. We share in the common meal. And I don't mean communion here, I mean potluck. That is worshiping God when we share these things together. Let us never cheapen or devalue this precious unity. Walking by the Spirit includes carefully guarding and maintaining this unity. It means we consciously reject any impulse to bite and devour one another, or to provoke one another, or to envy one another, and instead, being led by the Spirit, choose to love one another. This is what walking in the Spirit looks like. Working in the flesh yields division, dissension, and all the other works of the flesh. Walking by the Spirit produces spiritual fruit and a deep and abiding unity among believers unlike any unity of compromise contrived by the world. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. I pray for ears to hear whatever truth has been proclaimed today, Father in heaven. I pray for my ears to hear it, for my heart to receive it, as I pray for all of my brothers and sisters. I pray for conviction of sin for those who are yet outside of the kingdom, that they may be brought in and not excluded because of the work of the flesh that has never been repented of. I thank you, Lord, for the grace that abounds in Christ, that abounds to the chief of sinners if they turn to, 
turn to, turn to Christ and believe. Thank you for your word, for its clarity, for the way that it puts us in our place. And I pray that you would help us to see ourselves in this text wherever we fit.